think we've said a few times, and it probably won't be the last, that there's, there's a lot of works in progress still happening and uh, will continue to happen for some time. And that, that's good. That means that there's a chance to work things out and figure out how we're going to do this together. There's an opportunity and there will be opportunities later. Uh, if you're interested in serving in some area, there will be sign-up sheets at the back and more on that in just a minute. So I want to start with a question. That's a, that's a good kind of time-tested way of teaching. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you had arrived and, and then you realized that you were only just starting? Some of you, if you are new here, if you're a first-year college student, you might have just graduated from high school a few short months ago. And people go on and on about how graduating from grade 12 is the biggest thing, the best day of your life, the hugest thing, the biggest deal. And they hype it up, right? You've been working hard for four years, or at least putting in time for four years, however that works. But you get there. And, and it's this huge deal, right? You, you go and you, you get a suit, even though you're going to outgrow it very shortly or you get a dress that cost your parents a small fortune that you will never wear again and you do all the things there's parties and celebrations and banquets and family comes from all over and then a few weeks later a few months later at some point during the summer you realized oh I'm 18 years old and my whole life is ahead of me and I need to figure out what I'm doing now I haven't arrived at anything graduation was just a transition from one phase into another, right? We, we have to be careful of thinking that we've arrived. I remember when I was in college, uh, one of my fellow students had this realization in his last year of college. Uh, it was a hall meeting one evening and uh, he experienced kind of a breakdown actually. Uh, he realized that he had kind of spent most of his, his time in college just socializing, having fun, but then in a few months, he was going to be handed a piece of paper that said he was qualified to be a minister and he had no idea what that was even going to mean or even look like. The beautiful thing that happened, though, was that he began to be a different man from that point on. He began to actually take that call seriously. When he graduated, he took a job as a children's pastor and uh, eventually he became an executive pastor of quite a sizable church where he is now. He's raising a great family. He realized that getting a piece of paper that said bachelor's degree was not the goal, but was just a transition into the next phase of life. We're going to find that Abraham has to come to kind of a similar realization in our text today. It's Genesis 12, 4 to 9. I'll give you a minute to turn there. It's important to mark significant transitions in our lives. That's why we have graduations and weddings and retirement parties. But they always present us with a choice. These sorts of transitional milestones can either be places where we try to park, which isn't good, or they can become places that we launch out from. That's the goal. Genesis 12, if you have it, verse 4. To verse 9. I'd invite you to stand for the reading of our sermon passage for today. Genesis 12, beginning at verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. This isn't a long passage, but there are a number of important pieces of information. It's a very dense passage where a lot happens and it's told very, very briefly, both in terms of what Abraham did and in terms of what God did. So back in verses 1 to 3, if you are here last week, Abram receives the call to forsake his current reality and go to something new, something unknown. Along with that comes the promise of God's blessing. As I said last week, I'm not, I'm not sure how you set out on a journey to a place that you don't actually know, but he did. He uprooted himself, his family, and all his hired help, his livestock, and off they went. It actually mentions twice there that Lot went with him. Now, scholars debate this. Uh, some scholars, quite a number actually, wonder whether that's pointing out the fact that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Despite a ringing endorsement in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, almost confusingly so concerning Lot, uh, as presented in Genesis, Lot is kind of a mixed bag at best. He's constantly getting Abram into trouble. Every time Abram turns around, Lot is causing him some grief that he has to deal with. Nevertheless, taking Lot with him would have been a very natural and sensible thing to do, culturally speaking and, and just logically speaking, right? Lot's father had passed away, Abram's brother. And Abram and Sarah were not able to have children. So it would have made a lot of sense that he kind of would have become their adopted son. It also says that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Now, given that the time spans, the lifespans that the Bible records for these patriarchs is somewhat longer than what we would consider a normal lifespan. It's likely that 75 might have been more like what we'd consider middle age than into the retirement years. But still, he's not a young man. This isn't the place in life when people typically go off in search of new adventures and brand new starting over from scratch. Again, we don't exactly know whether Abram received that initial call all the way back when he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans or whether that happened in Haran. But at any rate, I think this reminds us that it's better to at least follow God late than not to follow him at all. He started walking with God. We don't know exactly how long. It even took Abram to get there. Whether that was kind of just a direct, straight-line journey from Haran to the land of Canaan, or maybe a more gradual migration, you know, following his livestock and over the course of some months, years even, he arrives there. But it sure doesn't take much time to tell it in the text, does it? As, as like the next verse. He went, everybody went with him, off they go. He arrived in the land of Canaan. 
And what's it say? There were Canaanites in the land. For a long time, I puzzled over this. I'm like, why is it important to tell it? Like, who else would be in the land of Canaan aside from Canaanites? Like, Koreans, Australians. Makes sense that Canaanites would be living in the land of Canaan, does it not? I think the point of this isn't so much to comment on their nationality or their culture as to say, Abram got there and the land was already occupied. He didn't show up in a land that was just empty and set up his shop and take over. But I kind of imagine that's probably what he was expecting, right? The Lord said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abram was probably thinking, okay, I'm going to be obedient and go. And the Lord is going to give me this land that doesn't have anybody living there. I'm going to cash in on some easy real estate. Makes sense. But that's not how he finds the land at all. It's already occupied. So it kind of starts to make God's promise look a little bit more complicated in that the Lord has promised to give him this land, but actually it's not really just there for the taking. It's already been claimed by other people. He's trekked off into the unknown. He's arrived. And now, seemingly, things should start to come into place. But it gets more complex. It looks like maybe arriving has not meant arriving at an end goal, but arriving at what's going to be a new start. Abram sets up, he pitches his tent near the place, that is the oak of Moreh at Shechem. This was likely a large tree or perhaps a grove of trees that, that stood kind of alone and was a lot taller than anything else around it, would have been regarded as a sacred site, a place where perhaps the, the natural and the supernatural met. This sort of thing, if you know anything about pagan ancient nature religions, that's pretty common. People would worship at, at groves of trees or at trees, but you wonder if in all of that there was maybe in some long lost sense a memory of the Garden of Eden, right? The, the tree of life in the center of the garden, and that's why people maybe were initially drawn to these things. At any rate, it is here, actually, that the supernatural breaks through into the natural. It says that the Lord appeared to Abram there. And in later stories, the Lord appears to Abram, and we get a lot more detail about what that looked like. Some mysterious visitors show up at his tent, for instance, but here we don't really get any detail provided at all. Like I said, it's very densely packed. It just says, the Lord appeared to Abram. If nothing else, though, we, we do get a sense that there's an intensification in the Lord's relationship to Abraham and, and his relationship with the Lord. Prior to this, the Lord had spoken to him. Now, the Lord appears to him with a message. The message has to do with the fulfillment of promises that have already been made. However, again, I think the answer here might have been a little bit disappointing to Abram, and it certainly would have been perplexing. The Lord had told Abram, go to a land that he would be made into a great nation. It seems pretty obvious, a sensible conclusion, he would assume he was going to get some real estate. But now, not only does he find that the land is already occupied, the promise, it turns out, is not so much just for him, but for his offspring. Right? The scope of this promise in time is now expanding more and more and more into the future. 
The promise is to his offspring, or some more literal translations might have his seed. The promise is not going to be so much for him as for those who are going to come after him. Possibly might have been a little bit of a letdown. But it's also confusing because this this word that's used here for, for offspring or for seed, it really speaks to biological descendants. And Abram and Sarai, you'll remember, haven't been able to have children. It's not as explicit at this point in the story as it will become later on, but even with longer lifespans and the fact that Sarai was a bit younger than Abram, it's probably at least a safe assumption that Sarai is now too old to have children. She's past what would normally be considered childbearing age, and it seems that they've, they've accepted the fact that they will not be able to have children of their own. But the Lord makes him this this strange promise, even at this very early stage in their walk together. We'll come back to this promise of seed or offspring toward the end of our time together. But we need to finish this passage before we go there. So now, even though this might have been kind of a disappointing turn of events, it certainly probably was perplexing, look how Abram responds, though. I just think this is amazing. He builds an altar there. To the Lord who had appeared to him. It's a bit hard to know what to make of this because altars, of course, typically are for making sacrifices on, and there's no specific mention that Abram made a sacrifice. Possibly he did, and that's just assumed. We're not exactly sure. Maybe it was strictly a memorial altar. But in any case, though, I think this is remarkable because it shows that Abram is continuing to trust God even though it's becoming apparent the promises are not going to happen in such a straightforward manner as he would have initially wanted them to. It's not just going to be a one-and-done deal for Abram, but he still takes a very concrete step, builds an altar, marks this moment he's had with God, does something concrete to signal to himself and to others that he is going to continue to trust God with this, even if the promise is going to take a longer time. I think this is pretty remarkable. It shows an incredible amount of faith on Abram's part, especially since he had so little to go on. Right? Oh, we can be, well, the Lord did speak to him audibly, and the Lord did appear to him. He didn't do that to me. But think of how much more we know now than Abram ever knew. Right? He didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have centuries of revelation of what God was up to and knowing about where all this was going to lead. He didn't have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in him in the same fashion that we do. Abram was starting from scratch, and yet he still got it enough to keep trusting God and take a concrete step in his journey of faith and commit to that trust, mark this point in his journey of faith. Abram doesn't stay in this location, though. He moves on to another place called Bethel, which is going to become very significant in the future stories. And there he builds another altar, and he does something else that's equally remarkable. So he built an altar to to commemorate and make concrete his trust in God. But then at his next stop, he does another thing that's remarkable. One of the things that I actually found really profound as I studied the biblical languages in college and seminary. And I commend those of you that are, that are doing that, especially those that are committing to this wild and crazy Greek immersion thing that we're doing. 
good on you. It's, it gives you an understanding of the scriptures that you, you might not have otherwise. But you know, it, it's not like studying Hebrew gives you the force or something that just like it tingles when the scriptures mean something significant. One of the most basic things that working in the original languages did, at least for me, it forces you to slow down. And it forces you to pay attention even to the small details of the words that the biblical text uses. One of the things here, it's this very short little phrase, it says, Abram called on the name of the Lord. That's actually really significant. Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Up until now, the Lord has been pursuing Abram. The Lord spoke to Abram, either back in Ur of the Chaldeans or in Haran, we're not quite sure. He, he goes to the, this place at the Oak of Moreh at Shechem. The Lord appears to him there and speaks to him. The Lord has always been leading up until this point. Sometimes sovereignly in behind-the-scenes ways in the circumstances. Sometimes in, in overt ways by actually speaking to Abram and getting his attention. But always up until now, the Lord has been the one leading. The Lord has been the one initiating. The Lord has been the one pursuing Abram. But here, Abram begins pursuing the Lord. He takes some initiative now and calls out to the name of the Lord, worshiping him, calling on the name of the Lord, actively seeking him. That's profound too. The passage ends by telling us that Abram left this place as well, and he kept journeying on. I won't bore you with the specifics of Hebrew grammar, but the Hebrew really emphasizes this, this journeying aspect of Abram's life at this point. A good translation might be something like he continually journeyed, he kept on journeying, he journeyed by stages, or even you know, journeying he journeyed, if you want something really literal and wooden. But in other words, the text emphasizes that for Abram, obeying God and following God was a process. Walking with God, living in obedience to God, and experience, experiencing God's blessing was not transactional, but rather relational. It was something that was lived out by stages and degrees as Abram walked with the Lord, grew in his knowledge and, and relationship of him. We see that already in this passage, in this very early passage of the story. We're only in the first chapter of what becomes a whole saga throughout the book of Genesis. It's not just a simple obey the call, go, receive the promise, done. It's a process. It's going to work out over time. Abram's whole life and then beyond that. We already see that beginning to take shape as the Lord reaches out to Abram and Abram begins to reach back out to the Lord. Of course, standing where we do now at this point in history and at this point in God's revelation and his dealings with humanity, we can see that the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram took took a lot longer than even Abram would have ever imagined. In many ways, these promises to Abram are still being fulfilled as people from all the, all the nations of the earth are being gathered in to God's family and are coming to be blessed in Abram. In many ways, as the Abram story unfolds, we'll see the scope of that promise getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the timeline getting stretched out further and further and further, right? 
Abram, his son Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel, and the patriarchs, Joseph, Moses, the land, King David, all of that. It stretches out and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But in another sense, it also condenses back down to a single point. Sometimes maybe this, this language of Abram's offspring or his seed, that might, that might jog a little memory there somewhere. It might make you think a little bit of the New Testament. Standing where we do, we can see a lot further than Abram ever could. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul takes up this theme and explains that this promise of offspring, while yes, it, it does refer to, to the nation, that ultimately refers to Christ. So there's a sense in which the scope of God's promise to Abram gets just hugely wide. Israel, and then ultimately all the nations that get grafted in to God's promises and into what he started way back then. But it also gets very narrow. It narrows down to focus directly on Jesus, the, the one perfect ultimate seed of Abraham. And as Paul says in Romans 8, this means that we get to be fellow heirs of that promise with Christ and as I've mentioned in Romans 11, that we get to be grafted in. Wild olive branches getting grafted in to God's promises to Abram and the patriarchs that come after him. I hope that we can really see that when we, we open up a passage of scripture like this and we read it, especially some of these old, old stories in the Old Testament, it can seem like far away, it can seem like this is, this is history, Maybe some morality stories or something. But that's not just all it is. And I hope we can see that and read it as such. We're not just reading that. We're reading a story of what God has been up to over the centuries, calling people to himself. And that story is still taking shape. God is still calling people to himself. We get to be part of that story that God began all the way back in the book of Genesis by calling Abram to follow him and walk with him. And until we see the Bible in this way, we're just going to see it as information, probably demands, maybe even condemnation. At best, maybe we're just going to cherry pick some useful little verses that cheer us up, give us a little pick-me-up, some helpful tips for life maybe. But it won't come alive to us. But if we can see it as a story that began then, that carries on, and that we're still a part of, then it will come alive to us. That changes everything. If this was Abram's story, and it's our story too, then our story, what's going on in, in our world, in our place and time, will have some similar features because we're part of the same story. If God called Abram to walk by faith and go forward into the unknown without all the answers then it's likely that at some point he's going to call us to do something very similar. If Abram had to realize that God's call and God's promises were bigger in scope and in time frame than anything he imagined, it's likely that we're going to come to similar realizations about what God is doing in our midst too. I don't imagine that we have to work too hard to see how some of this begins to apply to our own church situation. As I said last week, God called us to come together into one congregation. Now, maybe he didn't appear to us and speak audibly or appear in some tangible form the way he did for Abram. But the call was real. 
all the same. And it's important that we continue to remember that as we go forward. I know it's been very important for me to keep reminding myself of that over these last weeks. Right? When there's lots of work to do. It seems like everything's a a last-minute scramble, running around five minutes before church is supposed to start, helping people get where they need to go and answering questions. Meetings upon meetings upon meetings to get things sorted. Sometimes the task seems just overwhelming. And it's then, it was crucially important in those situations and at those times to remind myself, God called us to do this. We didn't dream this up out of our own imagining. God called us to do it. Whenever I remind myself of that, it doesn't take away everything that's stressful or doesn't make the work necessarily any less in amount, but it does reground everything. It does reframe everything. If God called us to this, we didn't dream it up ourselves, then we have to follow him in obedience. God called us. He opened up a door, and in obedience we walked through it. But that doesn't mean that we've arrived. There's lots that still needs doing. Our staff and our board, we've got lots of work still to do. Not just to complete, but some things we still need to even start. There are many ways that that you could be involved, too. As I said, there's going to be, or there are already, and some of you I've seen have signed them, and I thank you, and we really appreciate the willingness to get involved. But if you haven't seen them, there are some sign-up sheets out on the welcome desk there for all sorts of different ministries. Like Abram, the next weeks, months, even years will be a season of continually journeying. It won't mean mean literally walking around the dusty roads of ancient Palestine like it did for Abram. Some of us are thankful for that, and some of us think that maybe actually sounds kind of nice. But what it does mean, it, it will mean walking in faith and in obedience to what the Lord calls you to be involved in, in the life of this body. Maybe that's going to be something new. Maybe that's even going to be something outside of your comfort zone. Maybe it's going to mean being involved in something even when it feels like you've got other things that, yes, you could be doing. It's going to mean walking together with some new people, even when it might seem more comfortable to just stick with the people that you already know. And it will certainly mean walking with the long-term perspective in mind. What are we building for those that are going to come after us in this place? For students who are learning how to use their gifts, for for our children and grandchildren, so that they can know and follow Jesus, right? Somebody taught us the faith when we were younger. How are we passing that on to those who will come next? So it's important that we think with that that future-focused perspective. But like what Abraham did, it's also important that we mark where we are at the present. Abram built an altar. Actually, he built more than one. He built two altars, even in this short passage. And in subsequent stories, we're going to find out that Abram actually came back to some of those altars that he had set up. There's some instances where Abram got somewhat off track and eventually came back and he revisited those altars that he had built where the Lord had appeared to him and where he had marked that as an important place in his journey. Now, we don't need to build an altar in quite the same sense as Abram did, of course. The book of Hebrews reminds us at great length and at times specifically that we have an altar 
far greater than any altar made of stones that Abram could have built, that the Old Testament priesthood could have served at. In that, our Lord Jesus, the ultimate seed of Abraham, offered himself as our once and for all sacrifice. And he left us a practice by which we too can can return again and again to be reminded of what our Lord has done for us. Partaking in the Lord's Supper will be a a familiar act to us. Most of us will have, have done this in one form or another many times. Some of us may come from a tradition where we, where we celebrated communion every week. Some of us come from a tradition where that was a little bit less frequent, but regardless, th- this isn't new and, and unfamiliar territory. That's good. It's a familiar practice we can use to mark our journey. But in that, I think it's also important, especially on a, on a day such as this, our first Sunday as one congregation together in this space, that we make sure that as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we do so maybe with a greater degree of intentionality than than sometimes we do. We're always encouraged to examine ourselves before we partake and so forth, and uh, that's important to do. But I would also encourage us to do this with an eye toward marking this occasion. Right? As, you, as you pass the, the trays, the elements, to one another, receiving them from your neighbor, taking, passing them to your neighbor on the other side, I would encourage you to do this thoughtfully and intentionally today. Right? When, when you do that, when you receive, when you pass, let that be a reminder that, that we are joining ourselves together into one body. Of course, Christ has, has already done that in his sacrifice for us, in his sending of the Spirit. But this is a way that we can mark that, that we can, that we can create some memory in a tangible fashion. We're joining ourselves together in one body because we serve one Savior who provided the once and for all sacrifice for us. Amen.